I'm Gregory Berg, and during this time of COVID-19, as so many of us are hunkering down through social distancing, I'm trying to find interesting morning shows from the past that might give you some listening enjoyment. I've found a very intriguing interview from back in 2008 that I think fills the bill. I have read a lot of interesting books in my day, but uh, I'm not sure I have read anything that uh, caught me by surprise in such a pleasant way as the book which I'm right now holding in my hands. It's called Rats, Observations on the History and Habitat of the City's Most Unwanted Inhabitants. And this book is about uh, exactly what you think it is, indeed, rats, the world's most common mammal. But it's also a book about other things which uh, uh, come into play uh, through the efforts of uh, the author Robert Sullivan, uh, the author of maybe two other books you've heard of, The Meadowlands and A Whale Hunt. And uh, his work has also appeared in uh, New York Times Magazine, uh, New Yorker, and so on, uh, contributing editor to Vogue Magazine, and uh, the author of this new book, which is published by Bloomsbury, an endlessly fascinating book in so many respects. And I'm really excited that Robert Sullivan can join us for the next few minutes to talk about his book, and about rats. Robert Sullivan, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you for having me. And I, I don't know that anyone has used the word pleasant around the rat book, so <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm, I'm struck by all kinds of incongruities. One of them is I'm trying to think of anything that seems more disparate than writing a book about rats and being a contributing editor to Vogue magazine, of all things. Yeah, well, I, I, I do was just joking with them that it was actually a book about cats. So they wouldn't be too flipped out by it, but it's actually it's actually kind of a search. I mean, at Vogue, a really fun thing for me at Vogue, and I'm the guy that I'm the least Vogue, you know, looking or acting. I'm sure, I'm sure they're probably getting ready to drop me at any minute. But at Vogue, for many years, the fun thing has been to search for where beauty is that you wouldn't expect it. And and you know obviously supermodels are, you know and all these movie stars everybody thinks they're obviously beautiful, but the great thing is that the world is full of things that are that are beautiful that in a way that you don't think of or, or amazing in ways that you don't think of and actually that's exactly what looking at rats is all about it's finding you know other things that are amazing and beautiful about about actually the city environment but just about humans and 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 crazy things like rats. Right. Well, I guess that's what turns this into such a surprisingly rich story, is that there is so much that is interesting about the much maligned rat, but that in doing this study, you also ended up learning a lot about human beings, a lot about the history of New York City, and a a lot of other rather peripheral matters, which really uh, enrich this story in all kinds of of, of different ways. Uh, I'm just curious, are you too young to remember a movie called Ben? Uh, I'm not too young to remember it. I have not seen it, though, and I haven't seen Willard, and I keep joking that I'm you know, waiting for the musical. Ah, there you go. But no, I, I, I'm a little concerned that people think that I'm living like you know, Ben, that I'm surrounded by rats. But a key thing in my investigation, you know, I set up in an alley in New York City for a year to observe rats the way you know, birders would do it to observe a bird colony or, or something like that. But you know, I think, a very key point, I think rats are disgusting. I mean, they live in our disgustingness. And you have to, I have to, I really lock into that, first off, and in the end, too. That's not to say I don't find them, you know, interesting or, or, or 
fascinating or even amazing in so many ways, but they're disgusting. They operate <laughs> in our parallel universe. <laughs> I, I have to tell you one other screen image of rats, which haunts me to this very day, and it's been... 30 years at least since I last saw this, but an episode of The Man from Uncle where um, the blonde character, not Robert Vaughn, but the other guy was captured by somebody and bound someplace. And uh, they uh, submitted him to all kinds of tortures. And one of them that happened just as they went to commercial break was uh, they dumped a whole box of rats right on top of him. And um, I remember thinking that that's about as unpleasant as as life ever gets and um so it, it's funny the different images which sort of fire up out of your subconscious when you take a book in hand which uh which explores rats in a very unhesitating kind of way well i i, I remember that man from uncle and i also i i of course there's the famous scene in uh george orwell's 1984 with, with the rat and the cage and the face but but that, there again like you know, people say, why do we hate rats so much? And, you know, Freud does a lot on rats. And I tried to be, I, I, I said in the book, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to get into Freud. I'm just going to kind of look at rats. What do they do? Why, maybe just by looking at them, I can, I can I'm not going to say, but I can kind of get at why people find them so important, why we're so afraid of them. And I think it's really interesting. I think it's, it's kind of, you know, it's kind of Jungian or something. Or it, it is about... The, the linking of incongruities, because the, by looking at rats, you see how gross we are. They exist because we are so disgusting. Because I mean, in a sense, because we throw out all the stuff. Don't even you know, or because we have sewers. They they exist. You know, they thrive in in neighborhoods where perhaps we're not caring enough or spending enough money. Mm. Where there are people living who who don't have a lot and and can't get the landlord to come in and fix things. They so, they live because our, of our garbage. They live because of our waste. They live because of our negligence. Hmm. So so I think that's one of the reasons that we're just so disgusting. Like, oh, my God, a rat. Well, yeah, what you're really saying there is, oh, my God, we have let our infrastructure go, and we don't care about, uh, you know, the immigrant groups who've come into this new neighbor, to this new place and are living in the worst possible situation you know, amongst rats. And, oh, my God, we, you know, we don't care about our sewer system. We, we just, we don't see it, so we don't think about it, and we don't want to reline the sewers. That, mm. Those are the things you're saying when you say, oh, my God, a rat. You're right. You, you point, point out something so interesting, too, in comparing, of all things, a rat and a grizzly bear. When you say that uh, the presence of a grizzly bear would be the indication that of the wildness of a given area and that there's not likely to be a human being there or certainly not human presence and technology and so on because they thrive in the wild. But that if a rat is there, it's an almost certain indication that humans are there and their waste and their garbage. That's a, that's a great observation. Well, thank you. But I mean, that, 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 that's exactly right. They're an indicator. Rats are an indicator of people. You know, you always hear people say, Oh, that's a river rat, or that's a sewer rat. When I moved, I just I just moved out of the city to try living a little bit outside the city, and I live up the Hudson River. And I moved to this town, and my friend said, "In this town, he said, oh, you're going to love this town because he knew I was working on this rat book." He said, "You're going to love the town. We have rats here. They're river rats. They're here because of the river." And I had to shake him, and I had to say, "No, no, 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 Peter. I'm sorry to tell you, they're here because of you. They're people rats. That's really what rats are." Hmm. 
One thing you say in the book's uh, forward, or early in the book anyway, you say it is the very ostracism of the rat, its exclusion from the pantheon of natural wonders that uh, made them, in a, in a way, appealing to you. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, for two reasons. One is I just, I tend to, when somebody's putting somebody else down or something down, I tend to say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, what? Why are they so bad? What makes you so good and them so bad? So I have that kind of built-in underdog thing. And then, secondly, I, you know, the thing about rats is, this is where I'm sure I'm completely insane. Rats have, <laughs> I believe, this sense of history. Just in a literal sense, if you have a rat infestation in the basement of your building, then the rat comes out of its nest, maybe in the corner, and it's burrowed down into something or lives in garbage or it lives in shredded packaging, but it comes out of its nest, and it goes left along this wall, like to touch the walls, because it's touch-loving or sigmophilic, as they sometimes say, the rodent people. It comes, goes along the wall, and then goes to the next wall, then gets to the food, and returns by the same course. And exterminators like to say, if you knock the walls down, the next night, if everything was the same except for the walls, the rat would take the same course because of muscle memory, because that's how it remembers how to get there. And in the same way, humans take these courses, these trails, have. And you know how it is. An interstate highway often came up along an old state road or along an old route that ran the river valley that was first, uh, you know, a, a, a colonial route or maybe was a, you know, a route for the first Americans or, you know, and before that an animal path. Hmm. We, we follow these trails, these paths. Like history is in our emotions, in our actions. We are in cities where our ancestors have been for so long. And, you know, you're in Milwaukee, for instance, and I stepped off the train in Milwaukee and have to say, noticed immediately right before me in front of the Amtrak, there was a rodent, rodenticide bait station. I was very, of course, excited. <laughs> and, and, and I got to a park. I think it was, it's a, a, a union workers tribute park right near the train station. And it talked about, uh, it talked about the history of unions and it talked about how in, in Wisconsin, they, I think, were one of the first states to develop um, unemployment payments, unemployment insurance. Yes. Because at that time, as the, as the plaque said, somebody finally realized that, that the way the business cycle works, it's not necessarily your fault that they're killing your job. It's not because you're lazy, slovenly, you know, vermin. It's because of the business cycle. And, and this is the other thing. Rats are about looking at rats, rats is looking at groups and looking at migrations and looking at how people move into a new place and how they're often, when things go bad for them, treated like rats. We, we look at rats and say, oh, these are, are disgusting because we can feel better about ourselves when we say that about a rat. Likewise, when you know the Irish, for instance, came into New York, everybody said, oh, they're subhuman. They're disgusting. And even on every evening on The Sopranos, if you watch any mob shows, they'll say, he ratted me out. And what they're referring to is the rat having some foreknowledge and leaving the ship before anybody else does, being safe. But in fact, the rat leaves the ship because it lives in the grossest part of the ship, in the hold, in the bottom of the ship, where the water comes in first. So the rat is only being natural. People are only... People are not ratty. They just are perceived ratty by the people who have a better deal than them at that moment. Hmm. 
We're speaking with Robert Sullivan, and his book is called Rats, Observations on the History and Habitat of the City's Most Unwanted Inhabitants. I want to talk about the actual experiment, uh, observational experiment that you undertook. But first, just a, a couple of words about the rat itself and, and some of the things which you ended up uh, discovering about what make rats actually extraordinary creatures. Uh, for instance, tell us about the, the, the really interesting fact that rats are nocturnal, but they actually have poor eyesight. Tell us what uh, enables a rat to function so well at nighttime, given the fact that their eyesight is not all that impressive. They have, uh, when you're in an alley and you come in and the rats are there, they, they absolutely notice you, even though they have poor eyesight. They can smell you, I think, right away. They seem to hear really, really well. But uh, I think they don't have great eyesight, but they can see to some extent in the dark. I, I, just, I just find it absolutely amazing. Every time I walk into a rat-infested alley, and I'm happy to say it's not as often as it used to be, every time I walk into one, the rats are immediately aware. that They'll stand up and look at you, even though they're not seeing you. I, it, yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. If you do see a rat in the day, that tends to mean that it's been kicked out of its colony, and if it's having to search for food during the day, then that means there's a big colony at night that's telling it to get the heck out of there. Hmm. Tell us about the teeth of rats. Teeth of the rat, harder than steel. There's a scale called the Moore scale of hardness, which metallurgists use to measure the hardness of various metals, and I think teeth come in at 5.5, which, as they say, is harder than steel. They grow about, I think it's five inches a year, but they're constantly being gnawed down by the rats because rats constantly gnaw. And rodent comes from the Latin rodere, which means to gnaw. So all your rodents are gnawing. Tell us about the skeleton of the rat. This is uh, really uh, an essential uh, component in its ability to survive in the places it does. Yeah, the two essential components are actually three essential components. The skeleton collapses so that the rat can go through a hole as big as its small head. The rest of the skeleton will collapse behind the head. The hole, the rat hole, is, is really key, and they might live under the sidewalk, but they have a, in the back, they have a bolt hole, and it's usually covered with dirt in, in a more sort of traditionally wild area, maybe in your park. But uh, garbage elsewhere would, would be the covering for the, for the bolt hole, as it's called. And here's the thing. The rat, most imperatively, knows where it is at all times. And so if you walk into the alley and smash a garbage can and the rats all flee, they know exactly how to get back to their hole at any given time. And, and frankly, I find that to be kind of a noble city dweller's uh, survival skill. I think that, you know, when you go to a new city... You're a little nervous if you're staying there the first time and, you're, and, and you don't know where you are, especially at night, which is the rat time. Um, but, but when you know where you are, when you've been there, when you know how to get out, when you know, you know where the safe parts are for you personally, then you feel fine. You, you're okay. And, and that's what the rat does. It always knows where it is. It, ne it never travels more than about 65 feet, according to one of the best studies ever done in the 40s. 65 feet from its hole. Hmm. You also evoke a term I'd never seen before, thigmophilic, to describe rats. Thigmophilic is a term, it may be a term only used by rodentologists, but they use it in the sense 
you know, if, if people are waiting for a bus, a lot of times they kind of stand near each other or they stand alongside a building. Um, if, if you go into a subway station, for instance, people are standing alongside the walls. They, they want to be able to see around them. They know they're safe on one side if they're next to the wall. Hmm. Interesting. We finally need to talk about uh, uh, the reproductive capacity of the rat, which is truly astounding. It's, it's pretty astounding. Um, they're, they're, they're anxious to reproduce. They, they want to attempt to do so many times during the day. The, uh, the average is, according to some of the literature I've read, uh, a couple can be like two dozen times a day they'll attempt to reproduce. And uh, I think that the female rat, um, the litter, if there's a lot of garbage, the litter, no pun intended, of the rat could be up to about eight rats. Um, it's about a two-week pregnancy period, and the rat can become pregnant again within a matter of hours. And uh, it's really amazing. But rats live a year. Um, a pair of rats, some figures say... A pair of rats can give you about 15,000 rats in a year. Mm. So that's amazing. Um, but they live a year uh, in, the, in the city. In the country, a rat might live two years, but it wouldn't be as big and it wouldn't have as many baby rats. So um, in, the, in the country, they would only, they would be about half the size. But the thing about rats and how many rats they reproduce is that it's comparable to other species, actually, if, if you figure it out with years and so forth. And a very famous book called Rats, Lice, and History, which isn't so much about rats, it's about typhoid, kind of the history of a disease by Hans Zinzer. It's, as you may know, one of the most amazing books ever. And it equates the reproductive rate of rats with the reproductive rates of humans and talks about how many humans get reproduced all the time. Hmm. At several different points in this book, you wrestle with the, the, the difficulty of counting rats, that it is no small matter to, to calculate just how many rats were, for instance, in the alley where you watched them, or, or if one wanted to or needed to calculate how many rats are in this particular neighborhood or in this particular city. It's no small matter. I was fascinated by the story you told about what is sometimes still quoted erroneously as a statistic of one rat per person. Oh, people say it everywhere. In every city you go to, you hear people say it. In the country, people say it. In other countries, people say it. The UN has said it. One rat per person. It that that's how many rats there are, yeah, approximately. It, it, and it's not true. At one point, I think it was 1807, there was a book written in England by a guy named Bolter. Um, I think it's kind, of, kind of a nice uh, name to have, writing about the rat and his bolt hole. But Bolter, in the book called The Rat Problem, showed that he did an average, he estimated how many rats there were in England. And after sort of interviewing people in the countryside and the city, he made an estimate, and the, the number of rats coincidentally matched the number of acres in England at the time. Coincidentally, again, the second coincidence, the number of humans happened to be about the same as the number of acres. Anyway, it all worked out that it was a happy one-to-one -one number for that moment, but it was only an estimate. But everybody loved that number. They loved that number, and they couldn't let it go. And it got picked up in New York, and in 1948, a guy named Dave Davis came to New York City, 
and did it the only way you can do it. He counted rats by just trapping everywhere in the city, trapping them, marking them, releasing them, trapping, 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 and in apartment buildings everywhere. And then he did some averages, and he figured out that rather than a million rats in New York City, there were only about 250,000 rats. Now, I want to say, 250,000 rats? It's a lot of rats. <laughs> it's about the size of Akron, Ohio, as I, as I calculated today. Mm. But still, it's not a million. And even though it's, it, it is a big deal, it, it just goes to show that, that everybody's so worried about the number of rats. And I maintain that people like that number, one rat per person. Because, again, it means that, well, you know what? At least there's something that, that I'm better than. <laughs> well, it's been funny. Yeah, you say at one point people loved that statistic, and you say they don't want to let it go. Maybe because they abhorred it. I mean, yeah. it was kind of a horrifying thing that just sort of bedazzled people in a horrible sort of way. Yeah, exactly. I think you want to be. There's something about. Um, I think it's Edmund Burke wrote about the sublime and the beautiful. And there's something that you know the the Greek word for fear. It, it has the word reverence in it. You know, it's rooted, it's, they're related. And I think reverence and fear, as, as I understand it, there was one term for that. And, and you can kind of see that. I mean, you can, you can see these Chinese paintings, ancient Chinese paintings, of horrific dragons. Absolutely horrible, but also beautiful, sublime. We're speaking with Robert Sullivan. His book is Rats, Observations on the History and Habitat of the City's Most Unwanted Inhabitants. In order for you to undertake an experiment of really observing rats, you had to find rats. You say at one point, uh, one of the interesting things about rats is that they wind up in the disused vaults, in long underground tunnels that are not necessarily going anywhere. They wind up in places that are neglected and overlooked. Uh, tell us about your, your search for uh, a promising place in New York City to be able to observe rats? Well, I, I wanted to go downtown. I wanted to go into the oldest part of the city, the kind of crooked streets, the, the half streets, the alleys that are down near the South Street Seaport. Um, just because, it, again, in, those, in the curves of the streets, I feel like I can still see the history. And if you go through the old maps of, of New York or of any city, you can see where streets once confirmed the terrain. They, they went around hills or alongside crooked streams. And those things are still right there on Wall Street. You know, Wall Street, this great symbol of, of capitalism all around the world, it, Wall Street goes the way it goes because there's a little street called Maiden Lane, which is along a brook called, that, that where apparently maidens went, as one story goes, to, to wash their laundry. And the wall would have, been a, an actual wall, a palisade of sticks that was supposed to keep, you know, the Lenny Lenape from attacking the Dutch fort. And anyway, so in, in, even in our daily, you know, capitalistic parlance, there's this dot of history. So, so I wanted to go downtown, and I got some tips from some exterminators that there was a lot of activity in a couple of places. And then I went on my own, and, and, you know, I spotted some rats in an abandoned McDonald's, and I thought about that, and I thought about a couple different places. But I ended up finding this little tiny alley called Eden's Alley. I love the name of it, of course. And also, I just love that it was really obscure. The other day I was down there with a guy who lived in the 
lived in the neighborhood for 30 years. And I took him to the alley, and he said, God, I've never seen this place. <laughs> and it's really, really obscure. I'd never seen it either. And small. You say that it's about as long as a suburban driveway. Yeah, exactly. And it actually curves. It makes an elbow into this other alley called Ryder's Alley. And this guy owned it, and he was kind of a, it sounds to me, in the 1700s, he was kind of a rotten landlord. He would foreclose on people and, and so forth. And he was a brewer from the old country, I guess. And uh, He owned two parts of the land. One was this really unknown little, now unknown little alley. And the other one was a farm uptown, which would have been you know way up in the country at that point. But the farm was subsequently bought by the Astors, and the farm was developed and bought by the New York Times, and uh, the building by the Times was put there, and it eventually became what is today Times Square. So those are the two pieces of land that this alley owner owned. <laughs> A bit different from each other. I'll say, and that's what I love about it, too. <laughs> Times Square is the most you know, sort of famous intersection, and this is the least famous. And you call it a nowhere in the center of everything. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, yeah. yeah. So, so anyway... So then um, I just happened to notice that there were rats there. I mean, I, we had some, I took, I went with a friend from high school. My wife doesn't like me to go out rat hunting on my own at first because uh, I don't know what I'm doing, which is mostly the case. Anyway, I had some night vision here on the inocular, saw some rats in the back of this alley, and it turned out to be just a really fruitful alley. There was a, a Chinese restaurant that was dumping garbage on one side of the alley, and an Irish bar, I'm happy to say, given my heritage, that was throwing out food on the other side of the alley. And it was just really, their rats were just really happy there. And I just watched them for a year, and I just kind of set up the stool. And the more I looked at this alley and the rats and what this alley meant, I mean, I, I obviously noticed things about rats per se. I saw the things that I had read about in these old scientific papers. But I also saw what this place was in history and how this forgottenness was what made the rats thrive, but also the, the physical place is, is why it's so forgotten. And the history that matches that physicalness is a completely forgotten history. And I'm sure you'll be you know, turning off the radio as I say this, but by looking in that rat alley, by finding this giant rat pit, I kind of accidentally looked back and found this kind of ratty historical moment that made a big deal in New York City and during the Revolutionary War and, in fact, was the first mob riot uh, of the colonial, of the Revolutionary War. It was, in fact, the first bloodshed in the American Revolution before the Boston Massacre. In fact, the Boston troops, the British troops, were so upset about this riot that is not written about, that is unforgotten, that is forgotten, pardon me, like the alley, but they were so upset about this Battle of Golden Hill in New York that they, that's part of the reason why they, they shot people in Boston. Mm. Well, and you talk about a, a nearby Liberty Pole, which would be cut down again and again, kind of a, as a symbol of the rising resentment of the uh, Americans of this region against uh, the British. The British kept cutting it down because they were upset with the Liberty Boys. And the Liberty Boys were the founding fathers' fathers. They were that generation right before. It was like the 1750s and 60s. So it's not John Adams, it's Samuel Adams and his, his older relation. And it's a guy who you never heard of, probably, called Isaac Sears, who kind of ran this mob in New York and kept the loyalists from taking the city. Britain depended 
in their war plan on having New York. They counted on New York. And in the end, because the mob controlled the city and not the loyalists, in the end they had to spend so much time and effort and money on, on protecting New York that it ended up screwing them up elsewhere. It's often said that Washington didn't win the Revolutionary War, and I respect him almost more for this, but that he didn't lose it. Mm. And, and, and that's, that's kind of the case in New York. And, and you know, in, in this alley, the Liberty Boys, they, they were in this riot. They were the ones who were attacked by the British troops. And the Liberty Boys wanted not a radical new country, but they wanted a revolution. They wanted their rights to revolve back to what they were. They wanted to be the British subjects, to have the rights of British citizenry that they had previously had before the Intolerable Act, the Stamp Act. And the Liberty Boys were just like this mob that said, no, you can't do this. And they also were kin to the Liberty, or rather the Daughters of Liberty. They were the Sons of Liberty. These, the Daughters of Liberty was a great colonial group, one of the first American associations of, you know, colonial associations of women. And what the Liberty, the, the Daughters of Liberty would do, rather than tar and feather people, would they would molasses and flower them, which I thought was kind of a nice compliment. Hmm. But, but, yeah, the, the, you know, was this ratty group that is not really in history books at all, and and that's why, you know, disused places have disused histories, have have forgotten histories, and but the forgotten history turns out to be really, really, really crucial. Let's talk about a couple other uh, chapters of history which you sort of inadvertently end up exploring through the course of, of this e- experiment. Um, I could say it's all inadvertent. <laughs> the only thing that's purposeful is, is to go consider the possibility of inadvertent threats. Hmm, very good. Uh, at some point, you end up, I think, in a different place uh, looking, at, looking at rats. And I'm, I'm trying to remember what sort of got you out of your, your customary place, but uh, it got you kind of looking in, in other places uh, in, the, uh, in the neighborhood, and then you, you, you found yourself uh, standing in something called John Delury Plaza. Oh, yes. yes. Uh, still looking at rats, but, uh, but kind of wondering, well, who is this John Delury? Whom it was this... actually a little, plot, a little triangle, a very small triangle, you know how these cities have these small triangle plots or little plots, and sometimes they're parks. I know in Portland, Oregon, the smallest park in the country is Printing Press Square, and it's, you know, I mean, you can't get three people practically you know, on the property or on the area. But yeah, John's Lloyd Plaza was kind of right at the end of my alley, and I could stand on it and still look in my alley. And I wondered who this guy was, and as I realized who he was, he was the head of the Sanitation Workers Union. He brought together, he made the first sanitation workers union, bringing together dump workers and truck drivers. He changed the term in New York from garbage men to sanitation men, because he said, they're not, they're not garbage men, they're, they're real people. And this is in the, I guess he did this in the 50s, maybe started in the late 40s. He was one of 11 children, speaking of, of reproductive rates. <laughs> and, and he was, it turned out, his building was on, on one of the walls of my alley. The back of the basement of his building was on my alley, so I was completely excited to learn about this guy. And a most happy coincidence was that sometimes after ratting, I would stay out late and I would maybe stop and have a beer on Thursday nights, generally, uh, with my friend Dave from high school, who originally 
helped me out find the ratting places and was anxious to hear about my 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 experiment. And anyway, happily. And anyway, one day he turned to me and said, um, you know, if there was another guy in the bar, a friend of his, and it was uh, a guy named John Delury. Same name. Couldn't believe it. Turns out he he turned to me and he said, eventually, John Delury was my grandfather. Wow. <laughs> that's, the, that's the brilliance of cities, the coincidences that cities offer you. Hmm. Yeah, you say that uh, like a pond filled with ripples, the city is filled with circles that overlap and intersect. And there's a beautiful example of that. Don't you think? I mean, it's all cities, isn't it? It really is true. Let's talk about something else that uh, is uh, sort of a, a unlikely, uh, fascinating chapter of history. And that is uh, the legacy of the rat pit and rat fights, which occurred... Uh, in New York City, and and uh, I presume in, in maybe other big cities as well. And uh, this was a phenomenon which helped uh, to uh, inspire uh, a, a new organization called uh, the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. And some very interesting discussion and debate sprang up. First of all, tell us a little bit about uh, what these rat fights were like and, uh, and then what inspired uh, uh, resistance against them. Rat fights were basically right out of the gangs in New York, if you've seen the movie or read the book. And this is in New York City in the 18, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s. In the backs of saloons, there's a big dirt pit with a wooden wall around it, and they'll have dog fights. They even had bear fights from time to time, like men and bears. But the, the big draw was rat fights. And what a rat fight was, was there was a dog in the pit, there was a cage of rats, and they would open the cage of rats, and the dog would go after the after the rats. And whatever dog got the most rats, killed the most rats, would win. And you would open up the newspaper the next morning and see in the sports pages the, the results, front front sports page coverage, I've, I've seen it myself, of the rat fights that evening. And uh, in particular, there was one rat fight impresario named Kit Burns. He was a member of the Dead Rabbits, a gang, and and these these a gang that was in the gangs of New York. It's mentioned in the gangs of New York, and these were, you know, mobs of people living in the city, coming from the Irish countryside, having come from the famine, probably the Black Forty Seven, and they were all just partaking in communal activities and and wanting to be together and laugh and drink and tell stories and stay alive because they lived like vermin in really bad conditions, in the conditions that, um, you know, Jacob Reese documents in his photography in this book. Yes. And anyway, um, these rat fights were going on, and then finally this guy named Henry Berg, who had started the Association for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and was out on the streets, um, you know, stopping people from being inhumane to horses. The reason that ASPCA officers still carry guns in New York City is because of Henry Berg. If a horse was in misery they were able to carry guns to put the horse out of misery. And he also tried to protect um, children. He developed the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. And he was a pretty amazing guy, Henry Berg. And one person that he seems to have really despised was Kit Burns, who was this impresario, this rat impresario um, of rat fights. Mm. And he tried to shut him down, and they had a big court fight over whether or not 
you know, rats were an animal, and, and the judge basically sided with Kit Burns, saying that the rats, rats were an animal, they were vermin. That's such an interesting uh, distinction to draw. I think uh, uh, I, I guess the point made by someone was that uh, if you found a rat in your cupboard, you would kill it. You, you would you wouldn't hesitate to kill it. And uh, and in the mind of Kit Burns, uh, if if we want to kill rats anyway, let's make a sport of it. Right. And and it's interesting because it, it kind of rambles over to today. I I was once um, getting my uh, I, I was getting some hours towards a, a rodent control. Uh, certificate license in Illinois. I went to a big conference of rat control professionals, and I met some people there, and they were doing uh, rodent control for uh, animal rights groups. And I said, oh, well, you know, because I know the ASPCA in New York, when they have mice, they catch and release them. They let the mice go. Now, mice can come back to their nest up to like a half mile away. Some astounding figure, I'm not sure. I only wrote about rats. But um, I, I said, oh, what for to this rodent control person, this exterminator? Oh well, do you? They have if they have rats. Because he was saying they did rat work for an animal rights group. If they have rats, do you catch and release them? And he said, Oh no, no, no. I said, well, What do you do with them? They said, Well, we exterminate them. And I, I, I figured, Oh, well, that's it. The rats is the line in the sand. Hmm. Someone said in, in, in the arguments that went back and forth about whether or not uh, these rat fights should be illegal, I remember you quoting someone as saying, uh, if, if we forbid this, then we have to uh, make it a, a, a crime for a cat to kill a mouse. Maybe even a crime for someone to eat an oyster. I mean, uh, people really <laughs> grabbed at straws to try to preserve this, uh, this practice, which was, thankfully, eventually uh, stamped out, I think, in 1870. Yeah, it's certainly barbarous. But, you know, the thing that replaced it, so amazed to learn this, because people wanted to be together in saloons and bars and doing something. They wanted to be together in this kind of group way. And this was new because, you know, cities, I mean, yeah, you know, throughout history, people have gathered in the commons and in the fields to, to protest but sometimes also to celebrate and to sing and to do the other things that you do when you're with people, to cheer and to shout. And the, the sport, the urban sport that replaced rat fighting and dog fighting, but mostly rat fighting, was, you're never going to believe this, baseball. I believe it, but only because I read the book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> We're speaking today on The Morning Show with Robert Sullivan. He is the author of Rats, Observations on the History and Habitat of the City's Most Unwanted Inhabitants. I shouldn't let you go without uh, at least touching on some of the encounters that you had with exterminators. I remember at one point in the book you say uh, that's a rather optimistic term to use because rats are all but impossible to entirely exterminate. But uh, there are those who, of course, make a living uh, trying to um, keep them in check. And so you are meeting exterminators. You are learning about things like the Pest Control Technology uh, Journal. And uh, you meet even some luminaries uh, in the field and even engage in a little bit of rat trapping yourself. That turns out not to be uh, a particularly simple matter. No, it's very hard to catch a rat. Um, it was for me anyway. But I eventually did live trap a rat um, with some health department officials and actually the Centers for Disease Control and 
live one up close and how much different they are from uh, like a pet rat or a, or a lab rat. Really, really amazing creatures, so fast, so twitching with energy. But yeah, I met ex- lots of exterminators. And exterminators, I'm just, of course, drawn to them. I mean, there are exterminators who are not that good at what they do, of course, but the ones who are good at what they do are, are great, and to me, because they are are working in this world where they don't, people don't want to talk about them or notice them or think that they're around. At four-star restaurants, at, at nice hotels, they're often told to show up like in unmarked vans or, you know, without any, any, anything that would identify them. Mm. And they work at night. And, because that would be a ter- terrible uh, stigma to attach to a given eating establishment, exactly. for instance. Exactly, but imagine being that person who is a stigma. And anyway... They're kind of like, I saw this movie recently with Brad Pitt and Robert Redford. Brad Pitt was a CIA trainee or, or, or CIA agent who got caught behind lines, behind the lines as a spy, and so the government just said he, they pretended he didn't exist. And it's the same for exterminators in, in the city. And yet the exterminators know this kind of, they know this wildlife. This wildlife that we, we maintain is not wild. I have a friend who's a road control expert, and he uh, studied at, um, university and, and taught at university and he wanted to be part of the wildlife department they wouldn't let him they said no you're part of entomology which is insects and bugs and rodents and cockroaches he said no i'm rats it's wildlife biology it's a mammal no 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 you're you're pests you see it's, it's not considered natural and yet these exterminators are the people who have the key in on what's going on in the city they know how we are with our garbage they know that other world that we pretend doesn't exist but it's so so key to who we are. Hmm. I want to uh, have you b- briefly recount the experience that you um, have with uh, two experts, uh, Dan and, is it Ann? Dan and Ann? Dan and Ann. <laughs> uh, trapping some rats, and they want to draw some blood for some, from, from uh, some of the rats which they have captured. And uh, it's, it's an extraordinary extraordinary experience uh, it ends up for them and and for you to see this and uh, and you kind of come it seems to me to a new realization about the uh, formidability of rats as do they and when I started out this is a, uh, a guy who's working for the city for rodent control for vector control looking at various diseases the rats carry and they were looking at rat fleas in particular, they're worried about plague, the CDC was along, they're worried about bioterrorism plague, just thinking about it, just, you know, it would not be a particularly easy thing for a bioterrorist to do, to spread plague through rats, it wouldn't be, probably wouldn't be done that way, but they, they're checking it out to, to be safe and trying to get an idea of the rodent population in various cities, including New York, and, um, and we went out to sort of get ready for the CDC, and they were trapping rats, and then drawing blood for the rats. But you have to keep the rat alive to draw blood from it. They didn't want to kill the rat. And this guy, Dan, was really, you know, interested in trapping rats. And interested, he, his parents, I believe, were exterminators, and he had some experience. But here we were. He, he's from the south, and here he was from a rural area, and here he was in New York City trapping a wild animal. Kind of an amazing thing. And then when we trapped it, we were going to put him to sleep with... Um, you know, an, an anesthetic, as if you were going to knock them out to operate on their teeth or give them a filling. And that proved to be so much more difficult than they had imagined. It took so much more anesthetic than, than they had guessed. 
And that was amazing right there. And in the, min- in the beginning, Dan kept saying to me, you know, they're just rats. Don't let all that lore and myth worry you. They're, ju- they're just rats. <laughs> but by the end, the rat was not going unconscious. And then finally they got it unconscious. And I couldn't be a scientist because they were modulating the increase, you know, of anesthetic. But I, I would have just been pouring the whole bottle into the, into the cage. But anyway, they, they were modulating it. By the time they got the thing to sleep, by the time they went to draw blood from it, it woke up again and completely scared everybody, and it stumbled back off after, you know, having enough anesthetic to probably kill a small dog. It nonetheless managed to wander back off, um, you know, gouging at us, you know, mm. slashing at us. It wandered back off into the wild, which in that case was an abandoned lot. <laughs> and you say Dan at that point was no longer telling me to keep rats in perspective. No. <laughs> rats are incredible. They really are, he said. That's right. Um, this book is full of other great stories that I wish we had time to talk about. One of them is uh, uh, the story of, of uh, September 11th and uh, what is learned about rats in the wake of that terrible tragedy and disaster which uh comes raining down uh in this very part of manhattan that that we've been talking about uh you also come to our neck of the woods to uh to milwaukee uh a city which has actually a a, a very sterling reputation for uh for combating the numbers of, of of rats you also talk about the long history of rats and plague tell us briefly if 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 we even yet fully understand the significance of rats as the carriers of disease, is that something that we tend to misunderstand, exaggerate, or or is it something that we maybe in which we underestimate uh, the significance of that? Well, I think we, I think we, we sort of underestimate and overestimate. You know, people think rats disease, and it's really true. Um, and they think, oh, we'll get plague, but. Then we go in and we say, do the rats have plague? No, they don't. But they, they could carry it. We don't know in modern situation what plague in a city. We don't have exact an exact idea of what that's like. But, you know, on the other hand, we, we, don't, we don't think about all the things that rats could be doing. There's been studies in Harlem here in New York, for instance, and about child asthma rates. You know, child asthma rates are going up in a lot of cities, in a lot of places. And we're not exactly sure why. And one of the things about rats and, and, and rodents and all kinds of creatures like that is that we, we haven't really measured for all the things. We haven't tested for all the things that they might have because we don't really know all the things that they have. Um, just as you know, SARS came out of the wild, and through animals, got to us. So things are going to be coming more quickly to us as we cut down woods, as we move in closer. You know, in suburbs everywhere, in the suburbs I live, we have coyotes, you know, not not 15 miles from Yankee Stadium, because we're moving into their habitat, and they're thus moving into ours. And it's the same with disease and with organisms that we have never come in contact before. We're getting closer to them, and they're getting closer to us. And rats are known as this great germ elevator, as the phrase that biologists sometimes use. But, you know, there's a a, a study going on now. It just started where they're collecting. This really sounds really violent, and I apologize. But 
collecting, um, you know, rodent droppings around the country to look at what's there because nobody knows what's there. This guy is doing this, Bobby Corrigan, he, he, he's a genius for doing this. No, nobody would even think to look at that. It sounds absolutely horrible. And yet, one of the reasons they think asthma rates might be up in, in the cities, for instance, is because of all the, the droppings left by rats and just their very presence, their, their hair, the sort of dandruff from them. Um, just just to be bitten by rats is one thing, but just to be with rats may not just be an eyesore. They may be even more horrible for us than, than we know. Wow. And and it's 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 a possibility that we just simply cannot afford to ignore. No, but we ignore urban biology, urban ecology. We don't think of ecology as being part of urban ecology. And I have to tell you that the greatest book, for my money, ever written about ecology, about I think one of the greatest nature books of all time is um, is Sand County Almanac by mm. Aldo Leopold. Yes, and that was really I, I just I just I couldn't believe. I mean, so much bad nature writing has come out of that book. I'm sure I'm included. But he talks about a land ethic and about history and the land are they're, they're kind of one in his writing. And some of the very first rat studies that ever happened came from people who knew him and worked with him. Ecology is all about how we're all part of the deal. Everything is part of the deal. We have this idea that things are separate, that it's okay, well, you know, I'll pay a billion dollars and I'll go up to Minnesota, the Boundary Waters, for the week and keep it really clean up there on my tour and I'll be in a, I won't leave anything behind. But then when I come home, I'm like, you know, I'm just going to, I could walk over to the, to the mall, but I'm just going to drive the, the SUV over there, and, and you know, it, it, I'm just driving over. It's, it's no big deal, but it is a big deal. The tiniest things make a huge difference. Mm. Boy, that's a theme which we uh, we see over and over again in the in the pages of this book. And at the end, you you come to uh, remind us that uh, we are all a little bit like rats. We come and go. We are beaten down, but we come back again. We are different, and we are the same. So many things for us to learn uh, from your very insightful study and uh, discussion of rats. Again, the book is called Rats, Observations on the History and Habitat of the City's Most Unwanted Inhabitants. Uh, The book is published by Bloomsbury and its author, Robert Sullivan. Robert Sullivan, I love this book, and I'm so glad we got to talk about it today on The Morning Show. I thank you so much. Oh, you're being too nice. Thank you very much.